Well, good morning again. If you will turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 10, verse 17. That's where we'll begin this morning. Luke chapter 10, verse 17. If you were with us last week, you remember that uh, we considered these 72 followers of Jesus that have been now commissioned and sent out on mission by Jesus. The text tells us they were to go two by two to every town and place where Jesus himself was about to go. So they're heading out all over, uh, commissioned by their Lord. Jesus sends them out with these truths. If you remember, Pastor Calvin uh, uh, preached on these last week, the harvest is abundant, it's plentiful. But the workers to retrieve this rich harvest are very few. It's in light of this disparity then that he exhorts them to pray and ask the Lord of the harvest to send more harvesters into the field. The text really left us on a cliffhanger because we see these 72 sent out, but we have no idea what happened until today when we look at verse 17 and read this next section. So this morning, we'll look at the 72 returning to Jesus. We find that their ministry, in fact, was very successful. They offer these reports back to Jesus and he, uh, along with his followers, rejoice in what the Lord is doing. And we'll see Jesus offer a prayer of rejoicing. And so we'll think about together, how can we also rejoice in prayer? Will you stand with me out of reverence for God's word and let's read together verses 17 through 24 of Luke chapter 10. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Let's pray together. Father, again, we come and humbly ask that you would aid us in understanding and applying your holy scriptures. We pray this so that we might glorify you in our minds and in our hearts this morning, and that our affections might be stirred to love you above all things. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Have you ever gotten excited about the wrong thing? 
I mean, just really excited and joyful, ready to celebrate, only to be told by someone around you, perhaps, parents, spouses, you know, this really isn't something to celebrate. I'm about to tell you one of the most embarrassing things that happened to me. So we'll be true friends after this morning. When I was in high school, this is nearly 20 years ago, I was playing soccer and we were at a tournament on the coast of Mississippi. We were playing a team in the final game named St. Stanislaus, which is fun to say. And the game had gotten really rough. Uh, the referees were really trying to control. Um, there was a lot of emotion. We really probably were the two best teams in the state. And so there was a lot, of, uh, there was a lot at stake in this game. Uh, we went into overtime all tied up. And there's basically two ways you play overtime in soccer. Uh, one is called golden goal, and that's the first team to score wins. The other way is you play a certain amount of time, and the person with the most goals at the end of the time wins, and that's the more common way. Well, I thought for some reason we were playing golden goal. So our team scored in overtime, and I was so excited. So I just took off right onto the field. Now, keep in mind, the game was tense, and the referees are feeling on edge. And so they see this player running from the bench onto the field. I'm sure only to think, we're about to have a brawl here. So I get three or four referees running straight at me. And I realized what I had done, and I turn around, and it feels like the whole stadium is silent and everyone is looking at me. I have no idea if that was the case or not, but it sure felt like it. Returned to the bench, the game went on, and the coach came over to me and he said, did you get a little excited there, son? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I did. There are a lot of things that we rejoice in that really, at the end of the day, aren't worth rejoicing in. They either fall short of what they promise, or maybe they're just inappropriate things for us to rejoice in, much like scoring a goal in overtime when the game's not over yet. So I want to offer to you this morning three reasons we can always rejoice. Three reasons we can always rejoice. And let me go ahead and give them to you now, and then we'll work through them together. Number one, we can always rejoice because God knows us. We can always rejoice because God knows us, and I think it'd be more accurate to say, because God knows you. And I'll talk about why in a minute. Secondly, we can rejoice because God has a wise plan, and that plan cannot be thwarted or changed by anyone. And then third and finally, we should rejoice because God has revealed His Son to us. So let's consider point number one. We should rejoice because God knows us, or God knows you. Again, we look to the text here in verse 17. We see these 72 uh, followers of Jesus that had been sent out now returning. And they return with this amazing report. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. This is an amazing thing that has happened. The power of the kingdom of God now clearly rests on these that have been commissioned by Jesus and have now been empowered by him through his commissioning. Remember who these people were? These are fishermen and tax collectors, farmers, zealots, 
people without much spiritual authority when it comes to things of the world. They weren't scribes and Pharisees. They were the weak and the lowly. And now they have this power that's been amazingly poured out upon them by God. And now they've distributed to those around them so that they might be blessed and live lives of peace and fulfillment. Perhaps we could even consider this text as the first missionary movement. Jesus commissioning them, they're sent out and accomplish the mission they were sent to do. These brothers and likely sisters are excited about what is going on, and they should be. The kingdom of God has pierced into the darkness of the world, and now demons have to flee because of what Jesus is doing. And Jesus affirms their celebration. You know, he, he speaks in verse 18 when he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And what you're seeing is just a continuation of his fall and destruction and the beginning of a new advancement from God's kingdom and retreat on the part of Satan. This destruction began long ago for Satan. That's why Jesus remembers this moment when I saw Satan fall like lightning. This has been uh, happening for a long time, but now there's a, a, an intentional advance forward and rooted in Jesus's complete authority over Satan is this promise that he gives to his disciples, nothing shall hurt you. Again, can you imagine this scene? Can you imagine being one of these 72? You've just cast out three demons and you've come back to Jesus and said, isn't this amazing? He says, yes, it is. Let me tell you, it's gonna get better because nothing's gonna hurt you. That sounds amazing. Let's go to the dark places now. Let's go to the, the hard places if nothing's going to hurt us. It certainly reminds me of Romans chapter 38. Or I'm sorry, Romans chapter 8, verse 38, where Paul writes, For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is telling them and telling us, those who are in Christ, nothing can hurt you. That's something to rejoice about. But let's watch what Jesus does next. Though he celebrates with them, he says, friends, that isn't even the best part. As amazing as all of that is, that isn't the greatest thing you have. Verse 20, he says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. What is this? This, that you've been able to have this power and cast out demons and nothing shall hurt you. Don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You can imagine how the disciples might have been tempted then to respond. But Jesus, these things are so cool. This power is so amazing. Your kingdom on earth coming is so significant. And Jesus is saying, no, don't only rejoice in those. Don't get your priorities out of order, brothers, because the greatest thing that you can rejoice in is knowing that your names are written in heaven. It's easy for us to fall into the same patterns of rejoicing in our spiritual victories and giftings as it was for these 72. 
And the ultimate problem is those things don't bring us lasting joy. They cannot. And I can tell you some days I leave work thinking, what an amazing day. I'm so glad I get to do this. The Lord is moving. People's hearts are changing. Let's rejoice together at what God is doing in our church. There are other days I sometimes leave thinking, what am I doing here? Ministry appointment went pretty bad. Does God even hear our prayers? And I think Hebrews 11 gives us a better, maybe more accurate picture of what the Christian life is like. This is a a snapshot, a glimpse, and certainly those glimpses take place. Hebrews 11 gives us a, a broader spectrum. In verse 33, the writer to the Hebrews says, some who through faith conquered kingdoms, amazing, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Sometimes days are like that. And sometimes days are like this. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed. There are going to be moments in our lives of great spiritual victory, of great spiritual accomplishment. And Jesus is telling his disciples, in those moments, brothers, rejoice. But don't let that be the main place that you're finding your joy, that you're finding your source of rejoicing, because there will also come days that are difficult. There will also come days that are hard. The Christian life fluctuates between raising the dead and being sawn in two. And the only thing that remains constant is that your name is written in heaven. And that's where our rejoicing has to be. That's what he's telling his disciples here. Don't rejoice in this moment of success. Rejoice in something that is unchangeable. Rejoice in something that cannot be taken away from you. Jesus knows the reality of these fluctuating circumstances, and he's trying to give them hope. He's trying to give us hope this morning. In light of this personal nature, and I want to highlight this for you because it's important and encouraging. This is a personal aspect of our salvation, right? God has written your name. It's not First Baptist Church Jerusalem that he's entered into his book. It's not the churches of Galatia. It's not Bull Street Baptist Church. It is the names of individual people that he has written in his book. God saves individuals. He does not save groups of people. And so it may be this morning that you have placed your hope in your church membership But God offers us no plus one invitations into the kingdom. 
There is no one who was written in the book of life, no one who was saved because they were members of a church. The only way someone gets to heaven, the only way someone knows God is by their name being written in his book. God's salvation is personal. And what joy that brings us, right? God knows my name and he knows your name. And what greater joy can we have than the God of all creation knowing me? In 1996, Tommy Walker penned these simple words that say this very truth so explicitly. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls, and he hears me when I call. God's salvation is not distant. A God in the heavens that is randomly picking some and not others It is personal. He saves people and he writes their names down in a glorious book that he keeps what marvelous things these are. And so this leads us to a question. Does God know your name this morning? We're not dependent on church membership, not dependent on our mom or dad being Christians. None of that matters. Does God know you? That's the thing that matters. And there are people all over the world that are trusting in things they should not trust, like church membership. And this text so clearly says and leads us to see the salvation that God offers is personal. He must know your name. Tony Evans says it this way, to have a relationship with God, to be citizens of the kingdom, and headed toward glory is to be our supreme source of joy. Everything else is a bonus. And that is so true. If we rejoice uh, in these things, things of the world, things of our own gifting, things of our own success, our joy will be misplaced. Don't take joy in the things that we do. Take joy in our status before the King of Kings. Point number two, rejoice because God has a wise plan. God has a wise plan. Jesus comes to the next paragraph here, and he's just made this huge statement, right? Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then how does Jesus respond to all of the things that are happening, to all of the rejoicing, to all of the success? He responds in prayer. And so we see in verse 21, in that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Jesus sees the success of the 72, offers this prayer with exceeding joy. And what is it specifically that he's rejoicing in? This wisdom of God. This wisdom of God that has hidden things from the wise and revealed them in the text we see here, Jesus says, to little children. What's going on? Is this a moment when the scriptures point us to valuing certain attributes or certain statuses, children, 
versus the wise, perhaps, but I think more at the heart of it is an attitude of virtue, a humility. We think of the people that are wise of this world, the people with understanding. That understanding and that wisdom is often accompanied by a self-sufficiency, by a pridefulness. Compare that to little children, completely dependent on other people. It's this uh, dependence that God is longing for us to have, this humility that comes to him and says, I need you. I don't have all the answers. I'm not wise. Praise the prayer of Solomon that says, Lord, give me wisdom because I can't do these things. I can't come to you on my own strength. I am weak. I'm lowly. There's a man named Bart Ehrman, and let me just rattle off to you some of his resume, and I think this will provide an illustration of what we see Jesus talking about here. Bart Ehrman is a New Testament scholar. His specialty area of study is textual criticism of the New Testament. He studies the historical Jesus and the origins of the development of early Christianity. He's written and edited over 30 books. He's currently the James A. Gray Distinguished Professor of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He was educated at Moody Bible Institute and Wheaton College. He has an MDiv and a PhD from Princeton Theological Seminary. And despite all of these things, Dr. Ehrman is agnostic. And you would think of all the people that we might encounter, certainly this man would love Jesus. Certainly this man would know God because he's forgotten more about the New Testament than any of us will probably ever know. And yet Jesus' words to these 72 pierce through the uncertainty of this situation. And part Ehrman, how could this be possible? Because God has hidden the things of God from the wise and understanding, and he has revealed them to children. Ultimately, the reason that Dr. Ehrman denies the deity of Jesus, the miracles of the Bible, and the gospel message in its entirety is that he doesn't know God. Commentator Kent Hughes refers to this as a learned ignorance. And we are all in danger of it. We are all in danger of knowing a lot of things about God and not knowing God. Brothers and sisters, if you've grown up in the church, if you've been to a seminary, I'm talking to myself, you're in danger of this because you can know all the right things to say. You can know a lot of things about God and he doesn't know you and you don't have a relationship with him. I wanna offer to you some words of wisdom as an aside in this moment. We have seen many people fall away from the faith. We will see many more. And whether they are Josh Harris or Bart Ehrman or Ted Haggard or Jimmy Swaggart or whoever the next person is, if we don't recognize the truth of this passage, our faith will be shaken. Our faith may be rocked to think if that brother abandons the faith, if he doesn't believe that God is real, 
then how can I, who haven't, lear- haven't learned as much as he has, I'm certainly not as close to God as he is. There is no correlation between knowledge of God and knowledge about God. There is no correlation. In fact, Jesus here, the little children coming to Jesus, know him. That's very different than the Pharisees ministering at the temple who are just whitewashed tombs. Think of 1 Corinthians 1, 20. Where is the wise one of this age? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. I love Acts 4, 13, and thinking about this, when Luke writes, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Again, there is no correlation between education and knowing God. And that's great news for us, isn't it? There's nothing we have to learn. There's no degree we have to have. There's nothing we need to do except come to the Lord in humility as little children and pray that he would give us a relationship with him, knowledge of him, a growing fellowship and friendship. This truth should not lead us though in a apathetic attitude towards studying God because if we love God first and study him second, our study will then correlate with our love for him. It's when these things get out of order that we have problems. And so love God first, know God first, and then come to the scriptures and say, Lord, teach me more. I want to know you that I might love you. That's how the knowledge of the truth or what the knowledge of the truth should lead us to. This reminds me also of how God cares far more about our love for him than our knowledge of him. When we love God first and pursue knowledge of God as a means of loving him, our love grows with our knowledge. But this truth also protects us from discouragement, as I mentioned. As we look to other brothers that may fall from the faith, another one I think of is Judas. Judas is in this text. He's one that Jesus turns to in a moment in verse 23 and says, blessed are you for seeing the things that you've seen. And yet we know Judas does not love the Lord. He does not follow after God. He just uses Jesus as a means to an end. And this is another thing that that people claiming Christ have done for centuries. They have used Jesus as a means to an end, and that end is their own gain, their own prosperity, their own uh, earthly happiness. But I think this truth should also prompt us to pray for our leaders. We have a responsibility, brothers and sisters, to pray for those that lead us, recognizing the specific, perhaps, temptations of this passage. I was talking with some dear friends at one point in ministry. They were praying for our church, and they said, yeah, well, we're going to pray for the church. I, you know, I know we don't need to pray for the pastors. And I thought, oh, no. 
please pray for us. Because I think the only thing that stands between, in fact, I know, the only thing that stands between the success of your pastors and their failure is God's grace. And one of the primary ways God distributes his grace is through the prayers of the people. So please pray for us and pray specifically that our faith would not fail. You may think and may assume, well, they're, they're pastors and they've been to seminary and yeah, there's no chance of that. Please pray that our faith would not fail. Number three, rejoice because God has revealed his son. In verse 23, Jesus offers words that should remind us of the Beatitudes in Matthew's gospel. He said, says, blessed are the eyes that see what you have seen. This blessedness, this idea of being blessed is, is linked with the idea of grace and mercy being poured out upon these individual peoples. It's the same way in Matthew's gospel. And again, we think of these men, many of them tax collectors, sinners, zealots, fishermen. Jesus says next, many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it. Again, how amazing is this truth that you've been given grace to see things that even the prophets didn't see, that even King David didn't know. What are they seeing? What are they hearing? Well, I think Luke's intention is to, to say that it's everything that's happened up to this point in his gospel. They've seen the transfigured Lord Jesus. They've seen miracle and healing. They've seen his teaching. They've been with the Messiah. David longed for that. Isaiah longed for that. Abraham longed for that. And don't we too? In a sense, we see as the disciples see, because God has given to us his scripture. And so we know this Jesus, we know this Messiah, and yet we have not seen him with our eyes as these disciples saw him. Yesterday, we had a few mock trials at our house. We mostly put our cat on trial for doing, well, things that cats do. Whenever you think about trials, see them on TV, or perhaps you've been a jury member, or you've participated at a mock trial, the evidence that an eyewitness brings is significant, isn't it? Of course, this is what they saw, their opinion of how things transpired. I think Spurgeon helps us to think about the difference between sight and faith as it relates to our own Christian life. He says, sight is generally regarded by men to be the surest of all of our faculties. If we see a thing, there it is. There is no questioning it. Now, faith has this certifying power in a much higher degree. For the faith, which is of the operation of God and which distinguishes his own elect, is infallible. And so what we see may deceive us. What Spurgeon is saying, and what Jesus is saying is, there is a faith that is immutable. There is a faith that is free of error as the Holy Spirit informs it. And that's what we need to have. 
Certainly we long to see Jesus as these disciples did. And wrapped up in this longing, I know is a desire to see things of this world, the sufferings come to an end because we recognize once we see him, he will judge all things with perfect righteousness. But there is also a blessedness for those who have not seen him. John writes about it in his gospel. In the words of Jesus, he says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have, yet, who have not seen me, yet have believed. There's a blessing coming for us, brothers and sisters. There is a blessing coming for us that have faith now in an unseen Lord Jesus Christ. A blessing that we will further inherit when we do see him face to face. To face. Yet while we wait for that moment, we see him in the Bible. And there may come times, there may come circumstances when you say to yourself, I just want to see Jesus. And I would implore you, look to his word. Because this is exactly where we find him. He is the word, John tells us. He is the word. That soccer game I told you about, at the beginning of our sermon now so long ago, I'm happy to tell you we did win the game, finished first in the tournament, and we were all so excited that weekend. In the moment of the greatest excitement, it really seemed eternal. It seemed to never end. Yet I can tell you 20 years later, I've told you all I remember about that day. The promises of joy that we have in this life are often fleeting. Yet, these three things we've considered today offer us a place to find joy, a fuel for rejoicing that cannot be taken away from us. Our names are written in heaven. God has a plan, and it is sure and good. We have seen Jesus through his word and we will see him again. I mentioned earlier as well, some of the people I've known the last week that have struggled with COVID-19. And there does seem to be a weariness, not just for me, but I think for all of us, even for our culture at large. In fact, I was listening to a, an interview of Russell Moore who said the last two years, it just feels like the whole world has gone through a nervous breakdown. And I think that's probably right to some extent. And I have no idea what kinds of pressures you may be bearing today, what kinds of fears or anxieties, and maybe you don't either. But I know that there are these things that we've considered this morning that we can look to in these moments of great difficulty and trust that we will have a place to rejoice. Nothing can take these things away from us. No matter what kinds of suffering or trial or temptation we have to endure, our rejoicing, our joy can endure because it's not dependent on these things that change. It rests on the eternal, unchangeable God of the universe.
I'd like to offer you a couple more thoughts as we come to the end of our sermon today. Notice how Jesus responds in moments of rejoicing. When Jesus is filled with joy, in verse 21, Jesus prays. And I wonder how often it is that as we have moments of joy and rejoicing, how often is it that we think, it's time to pray. I find that it's usually times of suffering and sorrow. You know, when someone may come to me and say, I'm really struggling with this. Okay, well, let's, let's pray. Or maybe in my own life, you know, what I, I feel weak this morning. Let's pray. But Jesus is modeling for us something else. In the moments of rejoicing, go to the Lord in prayer. Are you having the best week? Have you had spiritual victory over sin? Have you shared the gospel with someone and it went well? Amen. Rejoice in prayer. Rejoice in prayer. And through that prayer, we worship the Lord. It may be today that you're with us this morning and you have never been to church before. Or maybe you have and you don't know what it's like to have a relationship with Jesus. The joys that we've talked about this morning really aren't appealing to you at all. Or perhaps you think, if only I could have that. I'll just remind you of a couple of things. First, God knows you. Not a collection of people here today, but he knows you personally. And he knows the needs of your soul. The writer to the Hebrews says this, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so I pray that if you do, feel a moving in your own soul, an exposing of the sin that is there and the need that you have for Jesus, that you would not harden your heart, that you would not push that aside and think, I don't want that, I can't have it, that's not for me. I pray instead that you would lean into it, that you would pray maybe for the first time to the king of the universe and ask his forgiveness for the ways that you've transgressed his law. That's the one way we're all the same here today. We've all transgressed the law of God. There's a place for us to find forgiveness. It's in Jesus. It's in the joys that we've thought about this morning. He knows your name. He has a good plan that will not change. And he's revealed his son to us that we might be saved. Let's pray together. Father, we ask this morning that you would help us to rejoice in the joys that our brother Luke has brought to us today through this text. Lord, what great hope there is for us as we think about you, a personal God who know us by name. You know us more intimately than anyone ever could. We thank you that you have good plans, that you have a good plan that's been established from the beginning of time and you are accomplishing that, but you also have good plans for us personally. We thank you that you have revealed your son to us and we recognize that there have been men and women long ago that longed to know his name, that longed to hear the stories, that longed to know how would God accomplish his plan of redemption. And we stand in 
sit today as a people that rejoice in a crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. It's upon him that we place our faith. It's upon him that we find our joy. It's upon these truths that we rejoice this morning and thank you that you have been so kind to us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.